Brew Strong is brought to you by morebeer.com, where a man can brew like a man. for the beer radio you've been looking for. This is the show that dispels myths, tackles the toughest topics, and makes no apologies for geeking out on beer. Hosted by two guys that drink before they think, Jamil Zainashev and John Palmer. This is Brew Strong. Hey, howdy, hey, my Bruin brothers and sisters. We're back for another episode of Bruce Strong, and I've got here in the studio with me my good friend uh, John the Rock Palmer. Good morning, Bruce Strong. And uh, we're uh, graced with the presence of uh, Dr. Charles Bamforth, or as he prefers to be called, Charlie. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, one of the great, great to uh, have you here. preeminent uh, brewing scientists uh, in the world, I would say. Yeah. Yes. Well, if you say so. Or at least in the studio. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I want to get right to uh, right to our, our, our topic for the day, but uh, I did not want to uh, miss out on mentioning our fine sponsor, More Beer. Get you uh, over to morebeer.com and uh, check out all their, their great uh, products, great prices. They are great people with uh, a lot of uh, helpful information and uh, great prices on great products. So Yeah, it was just uh, there, in fact. Uh, yeah, yeah. Did I just pick- swung by and grabbed a pump and a temperature controller. Oh yeah, yeah. There you go. All yeah. and they've got everything. They got uh, from temperature controllers to pumps to uh, odd-looking personnel. Yeah. Odd-looking odd personnel. Yeah, odd-behaving personnel. Yeah, JP works down there, so I mean, it doesn't get much worse than that. Well, in today's show, uh, as I said, we want to get right in it. I want to make as as much. Uh, uh, use as possible of uh, uh, Dr. Bamforth's time. And uh, Ryan, he had asked um, in the forum, uh, does clear wort into the fermenter necessarily mean clear beer out? And you know, we see a lot of questions like that. It's like, my beer isn't clear. You know, why is it? You know, what is it? Uh, you know, and... And I think a lot of people aren't even familiar that what they're seeing is, uh, you know, a haze for, for one reason or another. So uh, we've asked uh, Charlie to come and speak with us about uh, beer haze. So, uh, Charlie, what exactly is beer haze and why would a brewer be interested in that? Why is that important to us? Um, well, beer haze basically refers to the, the clarity of the beer, whether it's uh, bright or not, uh, whether there are particles in it, and whether when you look at it, it's, it's turbid. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, some beers should be turbid. Uh, one thinks straight away of a Hefeweizen or something like that. So, in which case, you've got to make sure that you've got exactly the right, consistent degree of uh, turbidity, because I, I'm always preaching consistency, and, mm-hmm. and uh, you, a beer should be exactly the way... You expect it to look uh, and taste, and so if it's turbid, let's make sure it's always the same degree of turbidity. Most beers are not hazy or, or cloudy, and we like them to be what we call bright and uh, sparkling or, or brilliant, um, and uh, we want them to stay that way. We don't want it to uh, the beer to develop um, haze or turbidity during time. 
So it, it really is a, a significant um, influence on, on people's perception of quality. I know a lot of people who, if they see a, a cloudy beer, and it, you know, they'll think, oh, it's not supposed to be cloudy. What's growing in it, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's almost certainly it's, it's not uh, a living organism that's causing the, the haze, but uh, it's due to some insoluble material that's, uh, that's chemical but not, uh, not living. Um, so it's, it's a major aspect of product quality that we need to, uh, to consider. Of course, there are many different types of haze as well, as I'm sure you like to get onto. Mm-hmm. Sure, and uh, uh, and what about just just briefly, uh, Ryan's question: Does clear word into the fermenter necessarily mean clear beer out? No, not necessarily. I mean, it'll help mm-hmm. um, in that you know if you've got particles coming through in the wort, then uh, you know they may or may not survive the fermentations. You know, they may stick onto the yeast. Uh, equally, stuff may drop off the yeast, and the yeast itself, of course, is a potential source of turbidity. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it also depends on what you do with the beer coming out of the fermenter. Uh, temperature is absolutely key and critical um, as a determinant of the extent to which you'll have haze. So if you have, say you have clear beer, uh, clear work going into a fermenter, uh, after the yeast has done its job, and then you take the green beer or the, or the beer and you chill it to a temperature below that of the wort, then you're going to start getting a degree of turbidity that wasn't there in the clear wort. So kind of chill haze, huh? Chill haze, exactly. And so um, it, it really is uh, not an absolute that, you know, clear wort is, is everything. There are a lot of people in the world, particularly uh, in Germany, where they're absolutely passionate about having clear wort, but uh, that's not necessarily for reasons of haze. It's as much to do with reasons of, of flavor as anything else. Oh, I see, okay. Yeah, I guess um, haze... Uh, Apart from being a visual, does that also have, um, uh, can that affect the flavor of the beer down the road? Um, it's unlikely. It, uh, it usually is a, a psychological thing, you know. Mm-hmm. I, 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 for one, uh, I'm the sort of person who, if I see a, a beer that comes out of a, a bottle or a can turbid when I don't expect it to, I, my initial reaction is to, is to be suspicious. Uh, and if, of course, the turbidity was due to some growth of something, then sure, there may, be, there may be a flavor effect. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it's, it's, it's primarily a, a, a psychological thing. You, you do, and this is a, people say this a lot, you drink with your eyes, and, and, and the foam and the clarity and the color, they all will indirectly impact your perception of, of flavor. Uh, okay, okay. Well, and I did have uh, an experience like that with uh, what I believe was bacterial at a, a bottle of one of my favorite beers. I got a six-pack, and uh, they were, you know, hazy to the point where they were nearly opaque. I couldn't couldn't see see my hand on the <laughs> other side of the glass, and uh, you know, the flavor was nothing yeah. like what what I you know was anticipating from from this product. It was radically different, and. Uh, I was shocked. I I went and got a you know the same beer from another source and you know no haze, brilliantly yeah. clear. Uh, that, that's clearly contamination, right? Yeah, right. yeah. yeah. a lot of, a lot of different infections can throw haze, I suppose. Um, well, they can. Uh, I mean, basically anything, any particle, whether it's it's grown up by multiplication of organisms or whether it's a, uh, a piece of chemistry, um, they mm-hmm. they will scatter light. Um, but you've you got to remember also that um, you know, when we talk about beer haze, and, and sometimes I prefer the word clarity, 
um, it's it's not just the sort of uniform turbidity dullness that you get evenly distributed through the the beer. You can have different types of of insolubility. You can have precipitates, sure, and and you can also have what we call bits. Um, and bits is an an interesting topic in its own right. Um, and when I was quality manager with Bass uh, many years ago now, we had a, a real bits problem uh, in an alcohol-free beer that we sold in Saudi Arabia. Um, and uh, it serves us right, shouldn't, wasn't it, for, for actually trying <laughs> to do that. Um, <laughs> but um, basically, um, there was uh, an interaction taking place between a foam stabilizer that we were using and the um, clarifying agent, the Isinglass fining agent. Oh. And in Saudi, it gets kind of hot, you know, and it was this alcohol-free beer, which was called Barbican, was sitting on the dockside in Saudi. It was reaching 50, 55 degrees Celsius. I make no apologies for using Celsius, by the way. <laughs> That's um, funny. I'm, yeah, a missionary. No I'm a missionary over here trying to correct the error of your ways. But, uh, <laughs> um, and these things stick together, and they were throwing uh, bits. Um, even worse, we actually changed the packaging. We went from cans to bottles. And these bits, first of all, they actually uh, took the form of a sediment, uh, a fluffy sediment in the bottom of the bottle. And when you looked at the bottom of the bottle, there was a... The, the precipitate was wobbling around in the bottom. It was really quite disgusting. And mm. w when it was poured into a glass, it broke up to give bits. And this was because of this interaction between two additions. Mm -hmm. uh, our solution was to take away the foam stabilizer because being English brewers, te you know, temperamentally, we couldn't take away the Isinglass findings. <laughs> we had to keep those there. <laughs> and nobody gave a rat's whatever about the foam. So uh, we took away the foam stabilizer. But, you know, that was one source of, these, of this particle, this bits. A real extreme example, often if you look in a beer, you do see floaters, you know, you, you, mm -hmm. you, you see fibers in there. And they're not usually to such an extent that they are a, a major problem. But sometimes it can be, and of course the, the famous example is Schlitz from, yeah. from many years ago, where they had a real problem um, with bits and fundamentally didn't solve it. And... Um, the company went under. You know, it was one of the two biggest companies in the United States at the time, brewing companies, and it died. So, you know, never underestimate the power of turbidity. Uh, so, so you can have these bits as well. Um, and then there's another type of um, uh, haze, which uh, uh, euphemistically is called invisible haze. Um, which used to really irritate my boss in in England. How can you? How can it be an invisible mm -hmm. haze if you if you if you can't <laughs> see it? You know. Um, so, uh, what it was was um, a, a haze that you detected instrumentally. You know, we to measure haze, you you put the beer in a, a haze meter, and uh, the traditional way of doing it is to put your uh, bottle or your glass into this meter, shine light at it, and see how much light is scattered at ninety degrees. Oh. Uh, to the incident um, and measure that. The more light scattered, the more haze. But very, very small particles, which you really find it very hard, if, if at all possible, to see by your eye, they will scatter light uh, to a disproportionate extent. Mm -hmm. And so if these very, very small particles are present in the beer, you get a huge haze reading, um, but the beer is bright. Mm-hmm. Um, so people say, well, that's not a problem then. Well, it is a problem because if you're in the middle of the night shift and somebody's measuring the haze, 
Mm-hmm. And you, you being the head brewer, um, have just had an interesting outside quality control experience the night before and are lying in bed. You don't want to have a telephone call to say uh, the beer's hazy, mm-hmm. uh, but it looks okay. We need a decision, you know. <laughs> and if the decision is, well, you know, filter it again, it won't work because these particles are so small you can't filter them out. Um, so, you know... That's a, a, an extreme example of a, of a problem it's, uh, that, that, that can exist in a uh, commercial operation, uh, a, a, an apparent turbidity, which isn't real. Mm-hmm. Um, the way around it is not to measure the haze by scattering the light at 90 degrees, but to have a, what we call a forward scatter, and you measure uh, haze scattered in a forward direction, in which case these small particles do not uh, uh, cause a problem. Mm-hmm. Now, we... Um, we found that these particles can be from unconverted bits of, of uh, barley okay. uh, that are not properly converted. And some people believe they're due to um, damage to the yeast, and the yeast uh, can lose some of its outer layers if, if uh. it's uh, physically abused in the brewery. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I, I was uh, thinking of uh, an interesting thing that I experience. I'll have a beer that I've brewed. It'll be brilliantly clear. And then I'll bottle it, and I'll go back to it uh, a couple of years later. It's mm-hmm. been in storage. And uh, you know, I'll decant the beer, and I, I can see in the bottom of the bottle just a very thin layer of uh, very fine particles that is kind of sedimented there. It doesn't even really you know, move from the bottom of this, this bottle. And I, I notice it more in uh, beers that have uh, highly kilned malts in them. Right. That I think when they go through the uh, through the mill, they tend to powder right. and have a really fine particle mm-hmm. size to them. Mm-hmm. And that dust kind of uh, that really fine fine uh, uh, particle size, it makes it through all the processes and stays in suspension long enough that it tends mm-hmm. not to uh, drop out until some time later. And so I can have a, a a beer that appears brilliantly clear and then later on end up with a, you know, years later, a very fine yeah. <laughs> sediment on the bottom. Well, of course, many beers will, I would go so far to say most beers will, given long enough, will throw sediment. Uh-huh. some sort of haze, turbidity, sediment, something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the causes, there are many different mm-hmm. uh, materials that can cause uh, cloudiness and turbidity and sediments in in beer. Um and uh, and really, it, I, I always preach the fact that you, you you can't simply try to rectify it at the end, um, at the packaging stage. Mm-hmm. You've really got to address the whole gambit from raw material selection right the way through the process um, until the finished product to make sure that your beer is going to be sufficiently stable. Well, let's do this. Let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll uh, get into the process and uh, things you can do to prevent beer haze. Back after this. Brew right. Brew smart. Brew strong. This is Brew Strong.
In the past year, the Brewing Network has been able to add two new shows, expand our studio capabilities and quality, and bring more beer information home to you than ever before. In no small part, this is due to subscribers like you. Thank you from all of us at the Brewing Network. Without your monthly support of any denomination, we could not bring you the very best in live beer radio like Can You Brew It? Brew Strong and the Sunday Session. Haven't signed up yet? Join your fellow brewers in the BN Army. Sign up today at thebrewingnetwork.com for a recurring donation as little as $2 a month. Besides all the great live radio you'll support, every subscriber is automatically entered in monthly raffles for amazing brew gear like a conical firm a temperature control system, or your own draft setup. Become a part of the BN Army today. This holiday season is one of gratitude, giving, and winning. More Beer says thank you to all their wonderful customers with deals from Thanksgiving through New Year's, in addition to low prices, free shipping, and the More Beer deal of the day every day. And one lucky customer is going to win Regan's Big Fat Package, the very first More Beer Pressurizable Conical Fermenter. Rolling out just in time for the holidays, it's their brand new redesigned stainless conical line with a new threadless racking port, new stand options, and a new pressurizable lid. They're giving away one of these new pressurizable conicals on December 31st. For every order you place with more beer between November 1st and December 31st, use the coupon code CONICAL up to once every day to enter yourself into the drawing. Go to morebeer.com for more details. The 2009 More Beer season of winning. Win yourself some great deals and maybe even a brand new conical fermenter. Enter today only at morebeer.com. Downtown Joe's, located in the historic Oberon Building in beautiful downtown Napa, California, offers an award-winning brew pub experience from 8.30 a.m. to 1 a.m. every day. For 15 years at the corner of 2nd and Main, Downtown Joe's has been voted Best Night Spot seven times and Best Brew Pub for the last four years in a row. Brewmaster Colin Kaminsky's handcrafted ales, like his Tailwagon Amber Ale and Double Secret Probation IPA, are the perfect accent to riverside dining, live music, and a relaxing outdoor patio. Don't miss the Beer of the Month, special rotating taps, and the BN Army Member Special. Wear your BN gear, get 10% off your beer. Visit downtownjoes.com to make reservations, peruse their extensive calendar of events, or just read more about their fantastic beers. Come enjoy the fine beer, food, and music. Downtown Joe's, the award-winning brew pub where you'll feel at home. BN Army members, are you looking for a discount on hops? Keep listening. Nico's Homebrew Supply at nicobrew.com has hops by the ounce and by the pound. Choose from varieties like Amarillo, Centennial, East Kent Goldings, Hollertower, Simcoe, Summit, Tomahawk, Warrior, Willamette, and more. And adding new varieties all the time, many for less than 20 bucks a pound. Whether a couple ounces at a time or an 11-pound bag, all hops are shipped vacuum-sealed and frozen straight to you. Nico's Homebrew Supply offers store-wide $5 flat-rate shipping and won't waste your money on unnecessary overhead or advertising. They're going bare bones and passing the savings on to you. The staff at Nico's Homebrew Supply loves to brew and is committed to keeping homebrewing affordable and accessible to anyone who wants to join in this great hobby. And for a limited time, use coupon code BNARMY at checkout for a Brewing Network discount. Visit NicoBrew.com. That's N-I-K-O Brew.com for your hops and more. NicoBrew.com, your bare bones buddy in the brewing business. Hero, what's it feel like? Take awesome and multiply it by two. Yeah! <laughs> Spraying live beer radio all over your face. <laughs> Can't get any better than this, baby. Woo! It's the brewing.
to the two guys that know how to turn beer into beer. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back. We're talking beer haze with uh, Dr. Charles Bamford. And uh, <clears throat> before the break, we, we started to uh, get over to the point where what, what can we do as brewers along our process? You were saying that you know, trying to fix beer haze at the, at the post-production point is meaningless. I mean, or at the very end of production is meaningless. Or it, it's not necessarily meaningless, but not really the best way to approach it. What you need to do is you know, start at the beginning and uh, go from there. Uh, where do we start? Do we start with uh, our grain selection? Our, our, yeah. Our yes, you do. Um, and uh, what you really need to consider first is what are the sorts of materials that actually uh, give a turbidity, what can, that can give a haze? Uh, because by knowing what they are, then you have clues as to what you can do to make sure they don't come into the beer. Mm-hmm. And there are many of these. Um, first of all, um, the materials from the cell walls of the barley. Uh, if, if you don't have good, properly modified malt, and you don't deal with the, the, the beta-glucans and the pentosans, people call them arabinozylans, from the cell walls, um, then they, in the finished product, can uh, throw hazes and give um, precipitates, particularly if you uh, inadvertently uh, cool the beer to an excessive degree, uh, the ultimate being freezing it accidentally. Don't do that. Um, and you'll get a precipitate. And often you find a lot of, of these beta-glucans in there. Um, and let me, let me uh, yeah. interrupt you for a moment. If you freeze the beer, yeah. my... my Understanding was the, or people have told me over the years that if you freeze a beer, you can turn what's a temporary chill haze into a permanent haze. Is that true? Or? Well, what you actually get is a you, you promote precipitation, mm-hmm. and a classic uh, example of it was published a number of years ago from Carlsberg, and they um, inadvertently froze quite an alcoholic product. Mm-hmm. So it's quite an alcoholic product, a lot of alcohol in there, but also, of course, it came from a fairly high malt grist and a malt that had probably too much uh, unconverted beta-glucan in there. Mm. So there's a beta-glucan in the beer, there was a precipitant, otherwise known as alcohol, and there was an excessively low temperature, and those things combined to bring the beta-glucan out of solution. Mm. Um, so... You know, the, the the actual physical difference between a chill haze, which we can define in a minute, and a permanent haze is probably, you know, there's a lot of theories about what it is, but I don't know anybody who's published a paper which said, this is the structure of a chill haze, this is the structure of a permanent haze, and these are the chemical differences. The mm-hmm. big difference is size. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the haze particles in a chill haze, and that's the haze that drops out of solution at uh, zero degrees Celsius. But when you take it back to 20 degrees Celsius, room temperature, then it goes back into solution. Mm-hmm. That's a chill haze. A permanent haze is, you know, it's always there. Mm-hmm. A chill haze, the particles are between 0.1 and 1 millionths of a meter, mm-hmm. micrometers. Um, permanent haze is between 1 and 10 micrometers. They're bigger. Um, so, so the cell walls, as, as I was saying, that they can actually, if they're not properly dealt with, they will cause a haze. Within that, the starch, you know, people still get starch hazes, you know, and, and you know, I, very cruelly I say, well, that's 
simply brewing incompetence. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you, you should be able to <laughs> convert the starches Hell, to. Uh, you know, heck, that's that's what we're about, isn't it? Right, that's yeah. We're supposed to be doing that, you know, but you can nonetheless still get you know starchy hazes. Um, you can have hazes that are uh, due to oxalic acid and particles due to oxalic acid. And, of course, the big problem with oxalic acid, um, which comes from the raw materials, of course, is that it, it will cause beer stone and, and cl- block up your pipes, um, uh, your dispense pipes, if you're not careful. But that can cause uh, haze as well. The one that nearly everybody focuses on is a haze that's due to proteins and polyphenols sticking together. Mm-hmm. And that's the one that, that we really, you know, most people have done their work on and researched and studied. But there are some pretty wacky and bizarre ones as well. You know, a number of years ago, I was at one of the the Bass breweries, and they 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 had a microscope on the on the table, and they said, "Charlie, take a look down the microscope." And I looked, and there were all these bacteria down there. Uh, they were dead. They weren't wiggling around, right? They were dead. And somebody said, "Well, what do you see?" I said, "Well, I think I see bacteria." And they said, uh, "That's what we think, and that's the that's the haze." That's the turbidity that we've got in our product. And the problem had arisen because um, they had changed the filter aid, the, the filter aid they were using downstream. Uh, they had been using diatomaceous earth, mm-hmm. uh, but they changed to perlite. And uh, I hope there's nobody who makes perlite listening, but, but you know it doesn't do as good a job as diatomaceous earth. And so it wasn't so much a haze as a kind of a dullness in the product. And it was due to these dead bacteria. And people said, shh, don't tell anybody about this. You know, we don't want people to know we've got... And they'd come from the malt. Mm-hmm. And, and they come from a... It was a malt house that was less than perfectly clean. And these mm-hmm. organisms are grown on the surface of the, uh, the barley as it was germinating. Lactobacillus type? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they'd been killed off in kilning, mm-hmm. but they'd come into the brewery... And make it through the process. And make it through the process and had not been filtered out. <laughs> Um, so it wasn't a developed hate. It was a turbidity in the product from the start. A very mild one. You know, the best way to, to check for the clarity of a beer is on a light box. You know, to have um, a shelf with the, the beer you can put on the shelf, and there's a light uh, behind that shelf with a black line in front of it. And if you look at the beer through that against that background of light, and you look at the black line, you know, you clearly can't have a beer which you've just given me in front of me, which is black in itself but if you've got a, 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 a an amber beer or a yellow beer or a lemon color beer or whatever then you look at the black outline and see if you've got a really sharp black line and then that that is the ultimate test of just how bright it, it really is hmm. so so dead bacteria is another source so you know glucans pentasans uh, oxalate starch proteins polyphenols dead bacteria there are a whole bunch of different things you've got to worry about so you're you're, and for the brewer, uh, the practical takeaway is you want to f- buy yourself, uh, you know, necessarily highly modified malt or you know well modified malt, and you know of a of a quality from a, a, a quality maltster is is that the, the well, takeaway? That's, sure, uh, unless you're going to try to rectify the the modification problem yourself in the brew house. Yeah, um, you know. Let's let's just take that the glucan then the, the, in terms of the modification. Okay, so clearly, if you are going to use an adjunct which has got a lot of beta glucan in it, say a torrified barley or a flake barley or a raw barley, even roast barley, then you've got a lot of beta glucan there. It's got to be dealt with then in the brew house. 
Um, but if you've got a, a, a poorly modified malt or, or, or an inhomogeneously modified malt, in other words, yeah. you know, most of it's malty germinated quite well, but there's bits in there that have not malty well because the barley was a poor viability or slightly dormant or something, mm-hmm. then that's going to bring beta-glucan mm-hmm. into the uh, the grist. Uh, the pentasan, which is the other component of the cell wall, that's never as well broken down as uh, the beta-glucan for reasons that we're not entirely sure of. That will always be there. Mm-hmm. I remember there was a, 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 an example of a, a haze that was reported by Foster's a number of years ago. And, and what they um, had observed was a beer that had been shipped from Australia and shipped all the way across to Europe. You know, it bounces around on the back of a ship. It goes through who knows what temperature extremes. And by the time it got to um, the destination, it had thrown a haze. And the haze was primarily a pentasan from the cell walls. And so the, you know, that's another thing that people don't uh, necessarily take into consideration. You know, it's, it's the handling of the product. It's mm-hmm. the extremes of temperature to which it's going to be exposed and how much agitation it's received. Because if you agitate, then you can actually whip things uh, out of solution and uh, cause a problem as well. So, so the, you know, the, yeah, the, sure, the raw materials are, are very important. So the beta-glucan, you want a highly a, a good a barley that has not got high levels of beta-glucan, you want homogeneously well-modified malt, you may have to deal with it in the brew house with a low-temperature stand, or heaven forbid, uh, some people would think, um, putting an enzyme in there, you know, oh, yeah. which, mm-hmm. to me, is perfectly okay. Well, because, <laughs> I mean, you're putting enzymes in, the, in your mash anyway, so they're, they just yeah, happen yeah. to be within the, uh, yeah, within I, the grain. I just so. don't, I, I, you know, I, there's this holier-than-thou attitude uh, <laughs> from some people. Oh, we couldn't possibly use a, a commercial enzyme. Well, actually, commercial enzymes often make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I once had a student came to my lab from, from Germany, so when you've got a student coming from the land of the Reinheitsgebot, what's the thing to do? You make sure they work on adjuncts and enzymes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's probably a good thing for yeah. them, you know. Yeah. Broaden their horizons a bit. <laughs> all right. Well, all right, so uh, uh, with the, the grains that, that we're talking about, uh, now what about uh, the mash itself and how you handle the mash, how you handle uh, uh, runoff, uh, okay. Things like that, sparging. Well, let, let, can, can we can we actually step, take one step back? Sure. And let's let's just talk about the the proteins and polyphenols mm-hmm. first, because I think if we can actually talk about those first, uh, then we can actually go through the process. Do those represent the largest uh, proportion of haze causers in beer for? Um, yeah, pretty much. But you know, that, that brings me on to a, another point. If I can segue sure. slightly, um, and that is that. If you analyze a haze, um, the classic way of analyzing a haze is to spin it out, centrifuge it out, or filter it out in some way, and then stain it. And people stain with um, uh, iodine, or as they say in England, iodine, um, to to check whether there's any starch there. And they can stain with Congo red for beta-glucan and eosin for protein and so on. And what they're staining is what is on the surface. That's all. They're not staining what's on the inside, you know. And these particles grow. So the really key thing, I always think, is what's on the, on the inside. How did this thing nucleate? Where did it start? And, what, mm-hmm. you know? and if you analyze a haze and you strip it down chemically and analyze it using chemical techniques, 
you usually find there's a whole bunch of different stuff in that, you know. So it's not only, it's very rarely just protein and polyphenol. You usually find some glucan and some pentasan and mm. some metal ions and so on. Um, but sure, quantitatively, I would say that the, the chances are you'll find it's mostly protein and polyphenol. Now, that protein comes from the grain, ultimately. Okay. And we now know that uh, it's, it's protein that's uh, from the, the storage protein, hordane, uh, which is very rich in um, an amino acid called proline. Um, and, and that is the main source, uh, main um, center in the protein that's important for hay, this proline-rich regions. The polyphenols, they come from both the, the malt, but also from hops. Right. So you've got to worry about both. Um, now, the very simple, simple is a relative term in terms of polyphenols. They're horrendously complicated things that I wouldn't even pretend to think I could draw the, draw the structure for. But <laughs> the simplest ones don't cause a haze. It's when they're oxidized and they stick together and, and polymerize, that is when they become haze-promoting. Um, I kind of think of them as uh, tumbleweeds. Yeah. Uh, I like to think of them as, as dum- uh, dumbbells. If you, um, mm. And the classic model for this was, was developed by my friend Carl Siebert at um, Cornell, uh, who used to for many years be research director at Stroh. Um, and he has developed a model to show that you have these dumbbell um, two-ended polyphenols that actually link together the proline-rich sites in the protein. And you get this matrix. But if you've only got one end of the dumbbell, it can only hold on to one protein. It can't link two together. And if you you don't have roughly equal quantities of the polyphenols and the proteins, you also don't get this haze formation. Mm -hmm. So you need oxidized polyphenols, and you need these proteins, and that's what is going to cause the problem. So when you want to worry about protein polyphenol hazes, the solutions are, well, get rid of the protein, Mm -hmm. uh, get rid of the polyphenol, or get rid of both. And also, in terms of the polyphenol, prevent oxidation. So in just the same way as oxidation is important for flavor stability, it's important for haze stability as well. I see. So that one doesn't cause the other, it's just you have a common cause for That's both. Right. Absolutely right. Okay. Um, now, uh, I've spoken to you before about uh, oxidation in the brew house and right. the dreaded term hot side aeration. Which uh, One thing is for sure about hot side aeration and oxidation in the brew house, one thing is for sure, that will actually promote insolubilization of materials in the brew house. So that actually will cause things to come out of solution. And if you get rid of them in the brew house, they're not going to come out in the beer. So actually, I I think the jury is out, as I've said before, about just how important uh, oxidation in the brew house is for flavor stability. But if if oxidation has an impact on, on haze stability in the brew house oxidation is a good thing <laughs> yeah so in other words the more careful we are trying to prevent ox or staling of the beer flavor we tend to promote haze because we don't get it to drop out early that's a risk that is yeah. a risk you know and i i don't know i've i have been quoted as saying and i i don't know whether i should say it again that you know all this obsession with uh, eliminating oxygen in the brew house I just wonder to what extent it has been uh, a bad thing for beer haze stability. And certainly, you know, that for a long time, people never really uh, had much of an issue with turbidity. And then it all came back. 
Yeah. It all people started having these mm-hmm. problems again, and it seemed to coincide with this shift towards minimizing oxygen uptake in the in the brew house. Now, don't get me wrong; I'm I'm not overtly advocating bubbling air into your mash. I'm I'm not saying that. Um, but what I am saying is that uh, oxidation uh, downstream for both haze and uh, colloidal stability, haze stability and flavor stability is a bad thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, I wouldn't uh, worry about oxidation in the brew house. Um, upstream. Upstream, yeah. Interesting. Mm. Well, and I think that that goes to... So many things in brewing, we see people taking them to the extreme. It's like, well, if this is good enough, especially in yeah. the U.S., I mean, that's, this is the way we do things. Well, if a little <laughs> bit is good, then a whole lot must be better. And, uh, you know, if getting rid of oxygen or watching oxygen is good, uh, you know, then el- totally eliminating oxygen must be the best thing in the world. So uh, I, yeah. I, oh, yeah. I think it speaks towards, uh, you know, especially if you're a home brewer, you know, don't don't worry so much. You know, yeah. the, the 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 barley. You know, it wants to become beer. You know, that it's it's a very very easy process, but, and and uh, yeah, you don't it, have to over engineer it. Yeah, I mean, it occurred to me as we were saying that that uh, that has a, a direct impact on the whole batch sparging versus sp- fly sparging. Mm-hmm. You know, oxidation of the mash controversy. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, really, oxi- if you if you expose the mash to oxygen, you know, during batch sparging, that's really not a bad thing, or it, it's a very low risk thing in your mind. Charlie. I think so. The the one issue, uh, of course, is color. Uh, yeah. And I know you're going to be talking about color later on, but of course, when these polyphenols become oxidized, they do uh, deepen in color, and um, you know, it's it's exactly the same thing that happens when you you slice an apple and and leave it. Sure. That color development you see on the surface of the apple is is due to oxidation of polyphenols. So that is why if you have a really really pale beer, um, then sure, you know, I'd worry about oxidation of the brew house from the perspective of uh, of color. But uh, if I was making, let's take, let's not name names, but if I was making Guinness, I wouldn't really worry about it too much. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, but so so in terms of the polyphenols, let, let's let's you know take that as an example going through the pro. What I like to teach my students is let's take the individual materials and and start with the raw materials and then go through the pro, brew house and let's see what the impacts are. So if you take polyphenols, okay, so there are polyphenols in the barley, but Carlsberg bred low proanthocyanidin barleys. In other words, barleys containing low levels of these haze Formers, yeah. um, uh, polyphenols. Uh, so that's one way. Remembering that there are polyphenols in the hops, but hop extracts, those that are made with extraction with carbon dioxide, liquid mm-hmm. carbon dioxide, they don't have polyphenols. So you can, technically speaking, you could select one of these modified barleys and a hop extract, and you wouldn't bring any polyphenol into the brewery whatsoever. Interesting. And so that, that, that is one strategy. Um, the polyphenols, of course, they will be extracted during uh, mashing. Uh, but uh, And as people know, that as you prolong loutering and you, you, you extract more and more material and the, the specific gravity goes down and the pH goes up, you tend to pull out some of the more astringent, higher molecular weight polyphenols. Right. Um, so that that's a, an important consideration. We've talked about oxygen and so on. And, of course, right the way downstream, to remove the polyphenol, you could use 
PVPP. So, you know, I, I like to take it one molecule at a time, one type of substance at a time, and that would be what I would do with, with polyphenols. Interesting. Okay. Mm. All right. Well, let's take a short break here, and when we come back, we'll get more into beer haze. Back after this. Smart. Brew Strong. This is Brew Strong. Hi, this is Push from the Brewing Network, and I want to tell you about the Brewmaster's Warehouse and how you can get 10% off your next order. I'm a pretty techie guy, but I've never seen an online store like this. It's awesome. Go to brewmasterswarehouse.com and click on Brew Builder. You can whip up a custom recipe so easily even Sven could do it. Seriously, it's slick. You can share your recipe with your own logo and notes to the Brewmaster's database if you want. And the best part, it keeps a running tally of the beer you're building while you're doing it. Then, bam, click Buy Recipe and your cart is filled and ready to go with helpful suggestions in case you forgot something. This thing is amazing. Brewmaster's Warehouse is run the way a home brewer would do it with great service, fast turnaround, and $6.99 flat rate shipping. Brewmaster's Warehouse and the Brew Builder blew me away. Check it out today at brewmasterswarehouse.com. I'm serious. And don't forget to put BNARMY in the discount code box for 10% off your order. Check out brewmasterswarehouse.com. Cheers. Nico, listen, our lawyer said that we had to do this for one hour, and after this, we don't have to talk to each other for three more months and until the next meeting. Kids. Come on, let's get out of here. I'm supposed to have more lines, so I'm the professional. <clears throat> Hey, it's Sully. And I'm Nico. And we opened the 21st Amendment nine years ago at 563 2nd Street in San Francisco, just two blocks from Giants Park, to make great beer and have a great time doing it. That's right, because to us, the 21st Amendment is more than just the right to make beer. It's the right to experiment, to be innovative, and just do things differently. And so now, we're putting our craft beer in cans. That's right, cans. You can find our world-famous Hell or High Watermelon Wheat Beer and Brew Free or Die IPA throughout California and Alaska. And now it's also available on draft at select accounts in the Bay Area. So next time you're at your local neighborhood pub or good beer store, be sure to ask for 21st Amendment in cans. Because everyone likes it in a can. Tasty Crack Cans. Tasty Crack Cans. Organic ingredients. Fresh, clean, good for you, good for the planet. And Seven Bridges has the best selection in the world. Everything is a click away at breworganic.com. Join the mailing list for special deals and regular updates about new products and specials. They have been brewing organic and serving organic brewers for almost 12 years. They can help you brew great organic beer. Take the National Organic Brewing Challenge, the only BJCP-sanctioned nationwide brewing competition 
just for organic beers. Enter the competition by October 10th for your chance to win great prizes, including a hands-on brewing experience at an organic brewery, brewing equipment, or organic brewing ingredients. Complete details about the competition are online at breworganic.com slash competition. Seven Bridges is cooperatively owned in awesome Santa Cruz, California. Everyone there is dedicated to worker and people-friendly business practices and environmentally friendly, worker-friendly brewing products whenever possible. Visit today, breworganic.com. Like the Lance Armstrong of the beer world. Except for that nut thing. This is Bruce Strong. We're back. We're talking beer haze with Dr. Charles Banforth. And uh, during the last segment, you actually mentioned uh, uh, speaking with uh, John and doing an interview with him about uh, hot site aeration. We did a, a full show on that as well. So if you uh, get a chance, go back through the archives and look for that show. And uh, Dr. Banforth provided a, a great deal of excellent information on that as well. And that was another another great show that uh, we owe you for. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're giving me a beer right now. so yeah. Right. So we're even. Okay. Yeah, done. Right. <laughs> I'm cheap. <laughs> <laughs> well, and uh, very knowledgeable. So... Uh, Charlie, what about uh, where were we on uh, on on beer haze? And, well, when and I was walking through um, the, the individual uh, molecules, mm-hmm. and I was talking about the sort of things that influence polyphenols, and we've talked about beta glucans and the cell walls, and making sure you have good malt, uh, homogeneous malt, and then of course, if you need to do with these cell wall materials in the brew house, they, you know, we get into the whole low temperature mashing in, uh, or the use of uh, commercial. Uh, beta-glucanases and pentosinases. And, and my recommendation, if you were prepared to do those things, is to use a mixture of those two enzymes. They're, they're much more effective than either on their own. Um, uh, oxalic acid, the, the way to deal with oxalate is to make sure you've got enough calcium in the brew house. Um, the, the, the rule of thumb is 4.5 times more calcium than oxalate. Uh, the reality is I don't know any brewer that measures oxalic acid, so quite how they hit at 4.5, I don't know. But uh, uh-huh. uh, just make sure there's plenty of calcium around, and that will precipitate it out in the brew house, and it won't get through into the finished product. Uh, how much is plenty of calcium? Are we talking 50 ppm? Yeah, yeah that should be plenty with most okay. oxalic acid. Okay. And then uh, the protein. Um, and that, that really is the, the interesting one. There, there is, there's, there's lots of protein in beer. You know, and I've said that it's the proteins that have these high levels of poly, uh, of proline that are, are the particular problem. Um, how to deal with that? Uh, and there are various um, ways, but the, there are two key stages in the brewing process to, to deal with uh, proteins and polyphenols and haze. And the first of these is boiling. Um, the more vigorous the boil, the better. Um, you know, the vigor of the boil is absolutely critical um, for many things, not only for haze and stability, but also for flavor as well. I I, um, I remember a number of years ago going down to a, a small brewery, which I certainly will not name, and uh, they asked me what I thought of the beer. And I said, well, do you want the truth? And they said, sure. I said, it tastes of halitosis. And they weren't, des- <laughs> they weren't desperately pleased with that uh, uh, answer. And I, they asked why. I said, because the boil is not a boil. It's a simmer. You know, you're not getting turbulence. And therefore, you're not driving off unwanted uh, volatiles. And therefore, they're staying behind, and it, the beer taste is bad. And to their credit, they actually rectified it and now win prizes. Um, 
It's the same for haze. If you don't have turbidity, you don't get the precipitation and producing the particles that then will be removed in the uh, clarification stage. If you don't get the turbulence, they will not grow to a sufficient size and you'll tend to have material surviving into the beer, which was, is a, a big risk for, for haze. So essentially, during the boil, the, the number of times you turn over the, the, the liquid as you, as you boil, you yeah. know, columns of liquid rise and others fall back down, Correct. and it's essentially stirring it up. Yeah. And um, the number of times you get that done during the, the length of the boil, the more, the more of these precipitates that are formed Correct. based on, and, uh, you know, the clearer your beer will be. You get flavor development. Now, one thing that, uh, you know, as homebrewers were told is, oh, you can't boil too vigorously. Uh-huh. And you, you never say too much. You, you can't do, you know, too much to, to some homebrewer <laughs> because you know that they will. Yeah. And I see people boiling, you know, 50% of their volume in an hour. And, uh, you yeah. know, and I, I think there's a point where there's, there's too much, where the, the word's leaping up and hitting you in the face. It's well, probably too much. Well, you've got to remember, I'm, I'm, I'm coming at this from a... A big brewer perspective, uh-huh. primarily. So, um, I mean, I'm I've got in my mind's eye now a nice big kettle mm-hmm. uh, with a lid on it um, and safety <laughs> devices, in, uh, uh, you know, and um, and also it's you know the the key thing for for boiling is the surface area to volume ratio for a tank. Mm-hmm. Now we've got a small brewery, the old brewery at Davis, you know, where we get. 15, 20, 25% evaporation in an hour for the simple reason that the surface area in proportion to the size of the tank is very big. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you've got a big area of evaporation. Mm-hmm. You know, on a commercial scale, it's, it's a different thing altogether. You've got a much uh, bigger volume with a, a relatively a smaller surface area. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you may only be getting a 5% evaporation, 6% evaporation in an hour. Um, so we need to be cognizant of that. Um, but the, 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 the only point I'm making is that if you just have a simmer mm-hmm. uh, and you're not getting turbulence, mm-hmm. visual turbulence, uh, you are not going to drive those particles together to make bigger ones that are going to drop out of solution. So by turbulence, you're kind of alluding to the, what we, Jamil, call a shape to the top of the boil, where you little, see little round, you know, curves yeah, in absolutely. motion on the surface, you know, and you can absolutely. see the the particulate matter in there, the yeah. the hot break, yeah. uh, you know, which is pretty visible, uh, traveling through and and see that making loops around in there, and then mm-hmm. then you know you're getting some good exchange of of wort throughout the uh, the column of the kettle. Correct. Now, a guy who uh, worked in my lab in the UK many years ago, Rob Reed, he, he actually showed that you could replace the, the thermal energy with agitation. So oh. he actually mm-hmm. had much lower evaporation rates, uh, a lot of heat, but he had a big rouser in there and he was whipping it all up that way, you know. So it's a collision of these particles that it's exactly and they end up sticking together That's and it. then it's that makes them bigger and they, they're, they're able to participate. Yeah. Good word in the context of brewing uh-huh. collision, yeah. <laughs> um, so that's the first main stage. The second key thing is post-fermentation and what I call cold conditioning. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and again, let's, let's talk on, the, on a commercial scale uh, now. Um, but the lower the temperature you can take the beer, short of freezing it, not freezing it, but taking the temperature as low as possible, um, the better it is. 
and uh, we did a piece of work um, uh, some years ago to show that it's the temperature much more than the time that matters such that by taking the beer to minus one or minus two celsius so that would be what 29 fahrenheit or down um, you won't freeze the beer because it's got alcohol in there which lowers the freezing point um, but you will chill out material chill haze basically mm-hmm. um, and it will come out in a relatively short space of time so minus one for a couple of days is better than plus one for mm-hmm. two months mm-hmm. ah, okay. you know it's the, t- it's the temperature that matters and then to keep it cold right the way through the filtration uh, because otherwise if you warm it up again that chill haze will start to go back into solution so it's a really key stage uh, a couple of things that you've you've got me thinking of. Uh, one, going back to the boil is, um, uh, I know some brewers they'll toss in a little bit of uh, hops at the very beginning of the boil. The reason being uh, to add some polyphenols to mm-hmm. get better uh, cl- later clarity in the beer because they'll you know those polyphenols will be there to combine with the proteins, and especially if you're doing something like uh, a lot of uh, uh, amateur brewers do. Uh, they'll do a 90-minute boil. The first 30 minutes, they don't add any any hops. Uh, anything to that about throwing in a couple of hop pellets or and, and getting well, more precipitate uh, that way because of the first 30 minutes? Or? Uh, it will depend. I mean, if it will only work if those uh, polyphenols coming from the hops are, are polymerized. Mm-hmm. Um, if they're simple, basic polyphenols, it's, it's not going to have an impact. Um, but you know, experience is a is a is a good thing. If people do it and find it works, then then so be it. And it's up to people like me to try and explain why. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, uh, it's not something that I, uh, I I've certainly not come across it uh, as mm-hmm. a commercial uh, practice for that for that reason. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, the 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 boiling and the cold uh, conditioning. But mm-hmm. in terms of protein, then of course the if you do need to use a, a downstream uh, pro, um, stabilizer, uh, then the, the most frequently used uh, commercially is silica gel, silica hydrogels, and silica zero gels, which are which are drier, mm-hmm. and they're very effective. And uh, the the people who market them um, claim, probably with justification, that they will remove uh, haze proteins, but not. Um, the foam proteins as well. Mm-hmm. Some people use tannic acid, so they actually add more polyphenol. It's a very complex polyphenol from gall nuts and actually gives very, very substantial precipitate. But then again, what it means is down at the bottom of your tank, you've got this great big precipitate mm-hmm. and there's lots of beer associated with it. So the losses tend to be increased and it also tends to um, jeopardize filtration. And of course, the, the original... Uh, hay stabilizer was the enzyme uh, papain from papaya pawpaw mm-hmm. meat tenderizer uh, but that certainly does um, screw up the foam if you're not careful because it will go for the foaming proteins <laughs> just recently there's a new enzyme that has come into the marketplace um, and this is called prolyl endopeptidase which is a fairly fancy name but the name indicates that what the enzyme does is attack the the parts of the protein where the proline is, which, of course, I said already is the is the part that's particularly important for haze. And it, it, it certainly is very good evidence that it will just get rid of these haze proteins. Now, this enzyme was was first 
developed um, to to go for people with uh, celiac disease because the proteins that cause haze are very similar to the ones that, that are responsible for celiac disease in wheat and probably in barley as well. And therefore, this enzyme is, is being touted for consumption by um, people with celiac disease. So, hmm. But it, it, it certainly is a good haze preventative as well. So you might uh, find that in your celiac products at the uh, the local drugstore. Huh? Well, may well do. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Throw some in for your beer. Yeah. Well, and uh, one thing that uh, I always see, I think, is common homebrewer internet uh, lore is um, that oh, it's important to to chill your beer rapidly because that's really where you get the uh, the break, the cold break, and all that. And get I've always, yeah. I've always. Uh, I think um, I first read it uh, in uh, George Fix's book about mm-hmm. it's really a temperature-dependent thing. And if you get down to uh, uh, 60 degrees Fahrenheit, um, you haven't even gotten half of the uh, the uh, break material to form at that point. Right. It, it really it's it's down at zero. And even then, um, you would have to filter it out. I, I know a lot of people, they say, well, no, 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 leaving the break material in the fermenter is a good thing because it's, you know, nutrients for the yeast and all that. I, th- I think there's still plenty in there, even if you get rid of all that break Yeah, material. what I'm talking about with the, the chilling is is the beer, uh, mm-hmm. post-fermentation. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of the, the break, the cold break, again, you know, there are so many schools of thought. Uh, when I was director of research at uh, Brewing Research International, and I, I, I had to have a research program that satisfied all of our members all over the world. And, of course, brewers, they all have different opinions. Mm-hmm. You know, so what Miller thought was a good thing, you know, Kieran didn't necessarily agree, and Heineken took a different stance. So I had to come up with some sort of program that satisfied everybody. And I said, that we, you know, what are your views on work clarity before fermentation? And there was everything from the Germanic, oh, it's got to be really bright, to the people who said, no, we want it as full of filth as possible not filth <laughs> we need it to be really cloudy and you know there have been a lot of studies on it and what it really what really the particles do is they form sites for carbon dioxide mm-hmm. to be released in the fermenter mm-hmm. and you know the yeast sort of is rotated through the fermenter on those bubbles and therefore by having turbidity there you're actually boosting fermentation mm-hmm. And so it's encouraging the fermentation. It's not a nutrient thing. You know, there were experiments where they actually replaced the uh, cold break uh, of the troop with, I think they used something like carborundum powder or something. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it was just as effective. Mm-hmm. And what it is, is this this release of carbon dioxide. It's on the particles. That's the important thing. Because the carbon dioxide has a, uh, an effect also on the yeast as far as yeah. uh, yeast activity and health. Well, that's right. And, and you're also, that's another thing. You're actually releasing these localized high concentrations of carbon dioxide mm-hmm. around the yeast. You're, mm-hmm. you're actually releasing it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the yeast is not getting suffocated. Right. And also stirring the yeast up, uh, yeah. just like on a stir plate. Yeah. Yeah. They're much more effective yeah. at consuming the Precisely. sugar. So, you know, and uh, I don't know anybody that's shown that that material going into the fermenter is necessarily a bad thing for hay stability downstream, as mm-hmm. long as you've removed the particles mm-hmm. and you've done the things that I've talked about and you've got mm-hmm. the thing chilled down. Or something. But the other, other point, of course, is, you know, you know, it depends on what you want to do with the beer. You know, if you know if you're if the beer's not going to travel 
to the other end of the earth uh, through inclement weather and is going to be um, inspected by highly critical customers and so on. It's not, you know, in which case you need to do a belt and braces and give it all it's got. You know, if it's, if it's traveling upstairs, you know, from the cellar, yeah, <laughs> brewed locally, you know, let, let's not let's not go overboard about this, you know, let's, uh, yeah. let's be sensible. <laughs> Definitely. Interesting. Well, um, okay. And, uh, all right, so we're, we're, what part are we in the process? We've, uh, we've uh, gone through the, the mash and the boil and, uh, you know, and, and what about uh, different findings, uh, you know, that the average, uh, you know, amateur brewer or uh, craft brewer might have access to? Well, you know, there are still many commercial brewers that would use uh, carrageen and Irish moss mm-hmm. to promote uh, the uh, particle formation and set, uh, settling in the, uh, in the brew house. Um, and, of course, um, you know, Isinglass uh, and auxiliary findings downstream, alginates and silicates, judiciously used, um, can, can aid in the... Um, the, the, the downstream processing and clarification stages. As regards stabilizers downstream, um, you know, most brewers fall into one or other camp, either the PVPP school or the silica school. Uh-huh. Um, and I facetiously, I say, well, you know, from my time in Bass, it was who who gave us the best lunch, you know. We would buy, <laughs> buy their material. Um, actually, we, we, we were PVPP people, and Many of the claims that are made, you've got to remember that. Um, and I've got some very good friends in, uh, who supply these materials, so I'm not going to, I don't want to upset anybody. But many of the claims that are made, of course, are made by the suppliers. Mm-hmm. So the people who sell silica gels will tell you, you, you should use silica gels because they remove specifically the haze protein, they don't remove the foam protein, and they do not remove the polyphenols. So you've got all these wonderful antioxidants there, uh-huh. and all these wonderful materials that are going to contribute to the body and the mouthfeel of the beer and so on. The people who sell PVPP say, we're leaving all that wonderful foaming protein behind, and all we're doing is removing polyphenol, and of course the polyphenols are at such low levels anyway, they don't make any impact on mouthfeel or antioxidants or anything like that, you know? And, you know, so who do you believe? Mm-hmm. Um, I actually, I don't believe that the, the levels of polyphenols in, in beer uh, make any contribution to mouthfeel whatsoever. Yeah, they are antioxidants, and whether they're antioxidants in the beer or antioxidants in the body, you know. And sure, it's always a good thing to, to, to claim that beer's got antioxidants and just stick it in the face of those red wine people. But, um, <laughs> you know, but but... It's not a big thing. It's not a big issue. I I, I really don't think so. And so it's whatever works for you. Mm -hmm. Belt and braces, I I do know some people for beers for export would use both. Hmm. Would use both. Mm -hmm. Reduce both by by some some amount. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And one one question I have that I'm sure people are are interested in, and uh, you've got a number of books out, and can you go over what those books are and, and, <laughs> and what uh, people might expect from them? And sure. I'm sure our listeners might want to pick them up. Maybe we can even, uh, Justin, get a case of books in. I can run them out to Davis and talk you into signing them. We could have signed copies in the store. Maybe. Uh, in fact, they're talking about your books in the chat room right now. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I had um, 
I had an old boss once, and he said he'd had two copies of my book. One he would, uh, I should sign it, and he would give it away. And the other one, uh, don't sign it, because knowing my ego, it'd be more unusual to have one that's not signed than one that's signed. <laughs> <laughs> um, there, are, there are quite a few, you know, um, including the one on uh, goalkeepers from uh, a famous soccer team in England. But uh, that's a sellout now, so you can't get hold of that one. Oh, I see. Or yeah. you can at a very high, sp- uh, high price on some of these uh, antique bookstores. But anyway... Um, uh, where do we start? Uh, there's a beer book called Beer, Tap into the Art and Science of Brewing, which has just gone into its third edition. Um, and that's with Oxford University Press. Um, and that's that's really targeted at uh, somebody who would go into Borders uh, or Barnes & Noble and uh, would want to pick up a book that is, does not trivialize beer but doesn't go ridiculously into the science. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it, that's achieved quite a... Uh, a, a following, so I'm, I'm quite yeah. pleased. With I that. have that. I think I think it's a good. I think it's a good book for most home brewers. Okay, thank you. Um, and then um, at the more um, molecular level, uh, there's a book that the American Society of Brewing Chemists published, um, and it shows how much I remember. I can't remember what it's called now. Principles of Malting and Brewing Science. I think it's called. Um, and that's where I, I go into the, uh, the, the chemistry in a, a much more detailed way. And that is a, the book I use for my, uh, my uh, class on campus, my lecture class. And another book which uh, is all about quality of beer, and that was published by Brewers Publications, Charlie mm-hmm. Papazian's organization, called Standards of Brewing. And uh, we talk a lot about, uh, uh, there's a lot of uh, issues of quality in there and some exercises as well, some some questions and so on, see people's interpretation of uh, analytical specifications and um, brew house, how to calculate a grist and so on. And then there is an outrageously expensive book called Beer, Health and Nutrition, um, which... um, uh, shows why beer is uh, is actually good for you and another book which is much cheaper called grape versus grain which is a completely unbiased comparison of beer and wine um, <laughs> and uh, most of the wine guys get it they they, they realize they take themselves far too seriously uh, and a, a book um god i've done too many haven't i um <laughs> I, have, I have several of these i realize as you <laughs> <laughs> There's a book uh, in a series on alcoholic beverages um, that we, we devoted to beer and quality. I edited it and wrote several of the chapters, um, including a chapter on haze. Uh, somebody else wrote that, actually, but uh, uh, foam, haze, gushing, color, um, and so on. Uh, again, it's not a particularly cheap book, but uh, uh, it's good. And now, wait for this, uh, in December, uh, recorded books are bringing out a um, uh, seven cd um, collection i think it's called uh, brewmaster's art and i went down wow. to marin county for two days and sat behind a microphone just like this one and recorded this uh, this book um so uh, that'll be out in i think in december Wow, that'll compete with our show for for listening on the commute. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, seven hours. Good yeah. work. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. Great. Let's take a short break, and when we come back, uh, we'll get uh, questions from the chat room. We'll get those answered uh, right after this. Keep your 
your carboy cap on. This is Bruce Strong. We'll be right back. Williams Brewing is your online resource for prompt delivery of quality home brewing supplies. Since 1979, Williams Brewing has offered the finest equipment and freshest ingredients and the best customer service in the business. Cut hours off your brewing sessions by using one of their 11 varieties of famous Williams malt extract. Their Williams German Pills is mashed with pure German Moravian two-row barley malt for a light blonde color and malty crispness you just can't get from other extracts. Or check out their unique fermenters, draft beer equipment, bottling aids, and more. They even have their own line of precision hydrometers. Go to williamsbrewing.com to browse their vast selection and enter promo code BREW at the order checkout for $5 off your next order over $50. Orders placed by 3 p.m. ship the same day. Again, go to williamsbrewing.com and enter promo code BREW at checkout for $5 off your next order. Brewing is easy the Williams way. Hey, what are you doing, man? Writing a review of WLP 400. What? You're reviewing yeast? Yeah. White Labs has home brewer reviews of all their strains. Are you new to these interwebs? Check it out. That's awesome. White Labs, your source for great yeast, invites all brewers to visit whitelabs.com to read and write your own reviews of all their yeast strains. Get real-world tips and tricks from other brewers who have made the most of their vials and post your own experiences. It's another way White Labs brings you closer to the best yeast on the planet. And send. There you go. You misspelled flocculate, dude. What? Ah. Uh, White Labs. It's all in the vial. Hi. My roommate's gone for the weekend, and I'm wearing something flimsy. Listen, baby. I told you not to call me after 8. I gotta go. Who is that? Your girlfriend? Shut up, thug. Did you guys get the cauldron set up on the altar of my yard? If you weren't so busy getting booty calls, you'd know that. Alright, I'm using the scroll of Mosher to boil the first decoction. You took too long. The color is now dark and past the point where you can still call it a pilsner. Yes, sucks. I hate it when Greg's the brewmaster. What's this? Poindexter Urkel? Dude, can't you see we're in the middle of a brew session? Is that an actual beer? Yeah, I crafted it. I don't really use the dice anymore. I'm a 10th level beer nerd. <laughs> Are you a 10th level beer nerd? Do you belch White Labs 833 and crap Simcoe? Then you're in good company at Northern Brewer. Check out Northern Brewer's huge selection of dorky beer kits, including the Cylon Detecting Three-Hearted Ale and the collector's item Super Alt. Mine's in mint condition because it's still in the box. Make 10th level at northernbrewer.com. You're listening to the Brewing Network. Learning to brew has never been so disgusting. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back. I still never understand that one <laughs> about being so disgusting. I'm sure that wasn't for like because you, you know, don't listen to yourself sometimes, Jimo. <laughs> you say some really creepy things. <laughs> <laughs> That's where that came from. All right. Well, <laughs> I'm glad to know that. I have to maybe go back and listen to some shows. Yeah, you're going to need to do that. Everyone else knows. They understand. They all understand. Okay. <laughs> well, all right. Maybe I shouldn't have asked. <laughs> 
I thought maybe it was a mix-up with like a, no, you know, no Sunday session or something. It was very sp- uh, strategically placed. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Well, speaking of strategically placed, uh, we have uh, Dr. Charles Bamforth here in the studio with us live, and we also have uh, a bunch of listeners uh, live, and you can uh, chat with us uh, during the show, or actually chat with Justin. You get yourself over to uh, thebrewingnetwork.com, and there's a... Uh, uh, you know, listen live button, and there's also uh, the ability to chat now with the uh, with the studio and ask your questions. So, what kind of questions do we have today about uh, beer haze? A couple of good questions come through from the chat. Uh, one person wrote in earlier. Uh, he says, "When I keg my beer, uh, it seems really hard for me to get the, a, a clear beer." Uh, and he said, "I'm pretty sure that it's not just sediment from the bottom." However, when I bottle, I never have haze problems. <laughs> Uh, is there a difference? What am I doing wrong? Wow. I would think if, if the haze is increasing over time, it's probably a bacterial thing. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but it's... It, you know? uh, uh, perhaps I missed something there. So it, it, there's a problem in the kegs, but not in the bottles. In the, the bottles. bottles. Yeah. It says bottles are always clear. Yeah. And usually you have more of a bacterial problem when you're bottling than you do right. when you're kegging. Yeah. What if you cut off the bottom of his dip tube? You know, I, I, I don't do that. Somebody was asking me about that. Oh, do you cut off the bottom of your dip tube? I'm like, no, because then I can't get all the liquid out of the keg. <laughs> you know, I, you know, I wait for everything to settle, and then, you know, I don't shake the keg around. So, you know, your first pint may have a, a bit of something in it. You toss that, and then, uh, you know, after that, it's clear until the, the very end. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Well. I, nothing springs to mind on the top of my head on that one. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'd have to come it. and try it. Where is it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Get over, right? Yeah. It, it, well, and a lot of times it's very difficult to uh, analyze a problem without actually yeah. tasting the beer, seeing the beer, smelling the beer, or being able to run some tests on it. So, yeah. uh, but I would, I would wonder if it wasn't, you know, some sort of. Does he say it's getting? Is he still in the chat? Is it? Does the? Uh, does the haze get worse over time? then I'd say maybe bacterial or even a wild yeast or something like that. Yeah, this one was actually emailed in, so uh, Hmm. I'm not sure we'll get the answers we need. Without knowing the precise procedures that he was following, it would be very difficult. Which, by the way, is a good example, guys. Just make sure you're pretty specific when you email in your questions. Also, a lot of times people will serve the keg beer and the bottle beer from two different locations and... Yeah. Maybe the keg beer is much colder, and it's getting yeah. a bit of a chill haze. Yeah, could, yeah. And if if that haze goes away when the when the beer warms up, mm. then he knows it's just a, a temporary chill haze. And uh, you know, maybe if he puts the bottles in the same, uh, you know, he should do the same batch bottles and keg, split it, put them both in the same fridge, both you know, condition them both at the same temperature, serve them both at the same temperature, side by side, and see if there's any difference at that point, and see if the the haze goes away when it warms up. A okay. controlled experiment. That's very good. <laughs> very good. All right. Steve Q writes in. Um, oh, and let me throw this in. Uh-huh. He should have somebody serve him the beers, and maybe in a triangle, so that uh, he oh, yeah, doesn't know point. which one's which, which, which. Because mm-hmm. you, your perceptions get all messed up when yeah. you when you think drink. you know what's going on. Oh. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when you drink to excess. Yeah. Right. Okay, right. Steve Q writes in, uh, can under-pitching lead to a yeast haze? He says, it seems when my ferments are very sluggish and take forever, uh, it seems to take forever for the yeast to clear. Uh, is this due to under-pitching? He says he ferments at 67 using 001. White Labs uh, 001. Hmm. Um, I, I can't see why, but I mean, why is he under-pitching? 
<laughs> Good question. <Yeah. laughs> well, and, and there's there's a couple of things that'll happen with under pitching. All right, so one is uh, if you pitch in appropriate uh, more, the more yeast you pitch, there are certain things that will be taken out of solution by the yeast, the things that'll attach to the the cell walls. Um, Right, that will, and and that could affect it in some way. Um, If you uh, if you're if you're under pitching because like of yeast health problem or something like that, or an old pitch of yeast, or you know low viability, or uh, and you you know maybe you've got some uh, petite mutants and you've got uh, you know a respiratory deficient yeast, they tend not to flocculate as well. Um, So that might be it if you're doing a um, you know, there's there's a, a number of things along those lines. I think may may have to do. Not uh, only if that, yeah. If the, if the yeast is not healthy, you know, um, then it you know there's an increased risk of, of autolysis. There's mm-hmm. an increased mm-hmm. risk of, of, mm-hmm. of damage from that source as well. And so, you know, ferment good fermentation practice in terms of correct pitching and correct nutrition and so on is 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 critical for all aspects of product quality. All right, and one more question from the chat uh, is about Warflock and Irish Moss. And uh, this question comes up a lot, actually. When is the best time to add these things to the boil? Is it 10 minutes? Is it flame out? Is it at the beginning? Everyone seems to have a different answer for when to put in the Irish Moss and Warflock. Um, my recommendation is uh, experience. Try it. Do some experiments. Uh, what works best for your set of, of uh, circumstances? That is the best. Okay. Approach. And so do you find that it is different brewery to brewery? Um, it's not something I've made a detailed study of, quite honestly. Um, I would, I would, I mean, the first thing I would do is take the advice of, uh, of a professional brewer for what they would do it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it may depend on, on the circumstances. It may depend on the grist. It may depend on certain other conditions as well. So, really, it's a case of trial and error. Okay. Yeah, good answer. Well, and, um, you know, I also, uh, I think, you know, home brewers were told, well, at 15 minutes out, you know, you add your Irish moss or whatever, and, and we were all taught to add it at that time. And mm-hmm. I, I think that's an excellent point. It may vary depending on other parts of your process. Um, yeah. It may, uh, may vary. Um, the World Flock folks, I think they recommend, you know, in the Whirlpool. And, you know, <laughs> so. Yeah. It, 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 it really does come back to why where does all this dogma come from you know mm-hmm. uh, and why do people so are so passionate about their views in certain areas and it's because what somebody works, typed it on the internet that's well why. yeah maybe but also what what worked for them mm-hmm. um and you know it really does depend on precisely what you're doing what you're using where you're doing it and so on uh, that can have a major impact mm-hmm. uh and s- the conditions will be very different in different places mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm. All right, that's it from the chat room today, guys. Okay. Um, oh, you know, one thing I don't think we talked about much was uh, the effect of water on haze. Okay. Um, well, the water is uh, the two potential um, impacts. One is going to be things like the level of calcium mm-hmm. that's, that's in the water, and that's going to influence things like uh, uh, the oxalate precipitation. It's going to influence the uh, activity of the starch-degrading enzyme alpha amylase. If you don't get Mm-hmm. Enough calcium, it's not going to stabilize and activate the alpha amylase, so you're not going to get good starch breakdown and so on. So the, the calcium ion is, is going to... But also anything else that's in there that is likely to uh, 
influence uh, uh, there's going to be anything else in the water which potentially could jeopardize stability mm-hmm. like nitrates or nitrites uh, yeah i was thinking more of of silicates and, okay. uh, mm-hmm. and so on and of course there will also be uh, in, uh, silicates coming from the grist as well that's a two-edged sword as well we, we've just done a study and I'm, you know it's it's the paper waiting publication at the moment and we found more silica in beer than anything else and anything else in your diet, you know, it's hmm. huge levels. So on the one hand, that that's that's great. If you want to make a health claim, um, but possibly not quite so good for stability, uh-huh. you know. Um, and what we found was the more vigorously you extract, you know, uh, in the brew house, the more silicate you get. So again, it's the whole prolonged loutering thing. It's not only about polyphenols; it's about silica as well. And of course, there, you know, the the silica in the water supply as well. Uh, was, would you say that in general you want to minimize the amount of lottering you do of the of the grain? Um, I think you can go to extremes. Um, there's a beer that I won't name uh, <laughs> that uh, to me has a very grainy uh, character, and I I know for a fact they really do drag out every last drop of extract. If you analyze the the Wort successively through loutering, you know, the, clearly the specific gravity is the highest as you start to louter. And, mm-hmm. But even the last running, sure, they've got extract in them. They've, mm-hmm. got, they've got fermentable carbohydrate. Yes, they do. But they pro rata proportionately have more astringent material, um, potentially haze forming material as well. Mm-hmm. And I really do think graininess, um, harsh graininess, uh, uh, is one of the th- one of the risks of over extraction mm-hmm. um, that I think is, is to me is is not not a good thing. Right. All right. I think that's an, an excellent uh, mini education in uh, beer <laughs> haze. I know <laughs> y- you know you could uh, wax eloquent for uh, probably days on on this subject. Well, wax, but I'm not sure it would be eloquent. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to wane now. Huh? <laughs> well, th- thank you. Thank you very much for joining us. And uh, if you're listening live, we've got about another hour of Dr. Bamforth's time, and we want to do a, a Q&A session with him. So, uh, you know, get yourself in that chat room, and you can ask some questions. And uh, we can do that uh, till uh, we run out of his time at about uh, 3.30. And uh, if you're not listening live, uh, make sure you catch that in the uh, upcoming uh, archives. And... Also go by our uh, sponsor, more, uh, morebeer.com, and uh, check out their, their products and what they've got. Stop by the uh, uh, Brewing Network store. You can pick up some shirts, some glasses. Uh, hopefully we're going to have some of Dr. Banforth's books in there signed, and uh, you can pick up some of those. And uh, until then, uh, you know, brew a beer for yourself, brew a bunch of beers for others, and uh, brew strong. Brew strong, everybody. <laughs>